things online. Uh, I, I'll be real with you. I've been sucked in to a new series on Netflix. You know, one of those ones where the characters just draw you in, right? There's suspense. Like, what's going to happen next? There's drama, right? The episode ends like, ah, oh, I got to go to the next one, right? You just find yourself sucked in. You're like, where did the time go? Uh, maybe you've seen it uh, called uh, Is It Cake? Um, okay, so there's some heavy sarcasm on the drama part. But actually, I, I watched it, the first episode, because like, this is so stupid. Like, what? They made a show out of this, and they, they kick it off. If you haven't seen it, and you'll get sucked in. And so they're like, come on. Like, people make cakes that look like things, right? like, and, then, and then challenge people to pick which one it is. Like, clearly, I can, I can identify. I mean, the panel, they, they won't guess, but, but I can guess. And so first episode comes up. They bring up, like, five items. They all look the same. I'm like, oh, that one's cake. And I was wrong. And then they go round two. And I'm like, oh, I know that one's clearly, clearly number four. Wrong again. And I find myself just repeatedly guessing poorly in this stupid show and a couple episodes in I'm like why can't I get this and then also why am I watching this <laughs> and going through it but what's so fascinating is that these uh, these artists we'll call them artists they're chefs here but they're so good at making these cakes that the only way you can tell the difference is by cutting into them and so I share that to start off our morning message together because Here's the reality is that I think that there are certain people when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to faith, uh, they get curious about what is real and what is not, especially in our culture where there is uh, really a just general mistrust of power and authorities because we've seen so many people be divisive and so many leaders fall short and, and there's just this mistrust. And at the same time of a mistrust, there's also a devaluing of truth. We've taken truth and made it subjective as a culture. And, and instead of an objective reality that people understand and stand on, it, and now in this postmodern world, we've taken truth away from the author and put it on the audience. And now truth is what you make it. And it's based on how you feel and what you believe. And so when you take those two together, it creates what's really known now in our culture as a deconstructed society. So deconstruction was really first used in the 1960s by a guy named Jacquez uh, Derrida and really launched as a part of what became the postmodern movement. And really it was a, to deconstruct is to tear down or to break into smaller pieces was really a ph philosophical angle that now people have applied it to different areas of life. And so they, and actually at its core is not bad if you think about it. If you think about a kid growing up learning how something works, and so maybe you took apart something, and you really you open it up inside because you wanted to see how it was put together or how it works, and maybe you worked on uh, a car or an automobile or a, uh, people into computer science and things break down. It's like, I wonder how this works, and you open it up and you see what's inside. Well, people now are doing that with faith. But what I wonder a little bit is that are, when people cut into it, when people cut into Christianity, are they cutting into the real thing or some imitation that looks like it on the outside, but on the inside is not real, it's, it's just simply cake. <laughs> and so when you take a look at a deconstructed society, what we find is that people love to add to or take away from the gospel. So people like Jesus but maybe they don't like the authority of the word of God. 
So they take Jesus minus authority because I don't want the Bible to tell me about my sexuality. I don't want the Bible to tell me about my identity. I don't want the Bible to tell me what I should do with my money. And so therefore, I will take the Bible minus authority. He says, I like him better as a nice guy that like pets lambs and is sweet to children and does some cool miracles and is fun to have at a party, right? Some water to wine. Um, action there. So like, but I don't like, I don't, I don't want to actually change anything that I'm going to do though. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't like that part. And so I'll just, I'll just go Jesus minus authority. But then there's another side that then takes the Bible and they like it, but they see the power that's available to it and how you can control people with it. So then they go Jesus plus power. And we see this in a couple different ways. Maybe it's Jesus plus a, a social construction, or maybe it's Jesus plus a political party, or maybe it's Jesus plus this. And it's not that we live in a society where, where you, you just completely are private because your faith really is a public thing. So vote your values, get out there, believe what you believe. But when we attach a specific group to Jesus and the gospel, what do we do when that person or that group that does something counterintuitive to what the gospel actually represents? Because when we, we marry ourselves to a certain power or group or authority, and we find ourselves in what's known as cognitive dissonance, when there is a gap between what is happening and then and your experience and then your expectation, and you've got to figure out what to do. And so we, then, uh, we have a lot of different groups who use religion as a weapon, who use religion as a way of controlling people. And so they go, Jesus plus these set of rules or Jesus plus these set of expectations. And so it sounds very Christianese, but when you cut into it, what you get is not the gospel, but something completely different. And so today we are launching a brand new series called Firm Foundation. And the premise of this series is that we wanna help you find faith and freedom in a deconstructed world. And I don't want you to be afraid of the word deconstruction. The reason in Christian circles the word deconstruction is scary is because they're afraid of what people are going to find when they really cut into it. Are they going to find the gospel or are they going to find other rules and expectations we've placed on people? And so what we can do is that the reality is not being scared by the word deconstruction, but really what ends up being a result, because deconstruction is a process but then deconversion is really the result. So people end up walking away from something. But my fear is that people are walking away from something or someone that actually isn't a real version of Christianity. That they're not actually walking away from the gospel. They're not walking away from Jesus. They're walking away from some imitation or some form of an experience or a person that hurt them or a disagreement that they have. And so they try to add to the gospel or they try to take away from the gospel. And therefore, if one person hurt me, all is bad. And now within our cancel culture, we try to write off people because of something that was said or something that was done. When what I wanna do is over the next nine weeks between now and Christmas is that we wanna cut into Christianity. We wanna take a deep dive and actually understand what is the gospel? What is, what is not the gospel? What is the foundation of our faith and how does that impact how we treat one another as a result of how Jesus is working in our lives? And so we're going to examine a book called Galatians. And Galatians is really seen as one of the powerhouse books 
of the New Testament because it was written by Paul and we see his conversion story and he, and he is super passionate. And so he's writing to a culture that is socially divided, racially divided, and religiously divided. I mean, kind of honestly sounds 2,000 years later, still could apply to our culture today. And so he's writing and he's passionate and he writes with authority and he writes with strength. And sometimes they would write letters with like, we're so thankful for you. We love you. You're doing great. Now, don't do this, but you're doing so awesome. In this letter, Paul's like, stop it. Listen. Right? Like, what are you doing? That's basically what he's saying. And he's, and he's writing this letter to wake the church up. And it's this letter that has such power behind it that ultimately shapes what Christianity really is. The theme verse for the book of Galatians is found in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, which reads this. It says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So it is for freedom. that At our core, our Christianity is defined by the freedom we have in Jesus. And that the structure of this book, there's six chapters, and the structure of this book kind of goes this way, if you kind of want an indicator of where we're going as a church and in these messages, is that chapters one and two of Galatians really talks about how the gospel is personal. Today, specifically, we're going to hear about Paul's testimony and his conversion story. And so we're going to see that the gospel is personal. But then in chapters 3 and 4, he gets into doctrine and into theology, and he actually says that the gospel is powerful. And we're going to see a comparison between the gospel and the Old Testament, or faith and law, grace and works, and all these things. And we're just going to talk about Abraham and Moses and how that fits into the story of Jesus. And then he ends in the last two chapters about sharing how the gospel is practical. And we're going to learn more about the Holy Spirit and how to bear one another's burdens and how the Christian church should, should really work together through the Spirit of, of Christ and the Holy Spirit working in our lives, trying to live out this freedom to, to love and serve one another. This letter to the churches in Galatia, which is really found in kind of Asia Minor, is in modern-day Turkey, it really is a letter that has so much power that it can change lives and launch movements. Martin Luther, who really launched the Protestant Reformation, actually said this about the letter of Galatians. He says, the epistle to the Galatians is my epistle to which I have wedded myself. And so uh, I sometimes talk with a lisp, and first service I almost said wedded myself, and that didn't sound appropriate, so <laughs> wedded myself, like clung to it. And so Martin Luther, who, who was changed by this letter so much between Galatians and then Romans, clung to this, and his eyes were opened, because what he realized at the time is that Christianity at the moment was really controlled by power-hungry people who used religion to just advance their own systems of belief and political power. And so after reading Galatians, after reading the New Testament, after reading these letters, he was, his eyes were opened to the grace of God and to the freedom that comes in knowing Jesus to the point that on October 31st, so on what we know as Halloween, it's actually seen as Reformation Day, that he posted those 99 theses to the door and say, no, there is power that all believers should have access to. 
And so you mirror this belief along with the printing press, and when people have access to the word and they see that the grace of God is available to everyone, it changes everything. They cut into Christianity, they cut into, Christ, into faith, and what he found was not a list of rules, but what he found was grace. And when it comes to grace, author and speaker Richard Foster wrote this. He says, grace is not a ticket to heaven but the earth under our feet on the road with Christ. Grace saves us from life without God. Even more, it empowers us for life with God. Love that. That grace not only saves us from life without God, but then empowers us for life with him. Now, what is grace? By just typical definition and and biblical definition standards, grace is God's unmerited favor. In other words, it is a gift given because God wants to, because he can, to whom he pleases. We don't have a say in that. Like it's his invitation to hand out. It's his gift to give. I can't give you somebody else's gift. Right? I was, <laughs> I was in a restaurant, and, uh, and I won't name the restaurant, but let's just say the customer service was not great. And I just watched this train wreck pile up one after another. And I, I thankfully got my food and was happy for it. But um, we'll just say I'm not the most motivated teenager was working the front desk. And, and a guy came in and was like, hey, hey, I've been waiting for my food. And the kid finally looked up, took, took the AirPod out of his ears. One, why are you wearing AirPods on shift at a register in a restaurant? And he goes... What are you talking about? Your food went out like 20 minutes ago. Put his head po- AirPods back in and turned his back to the guy. I was like, are you serious? And this guy had a couple, we'll say colorful words to say that you wouldn't normally welcome in an establishment. And, um, and, and the guy's like, what? You mean somebody took my food? That was my order. And he goes, I don't know. What do you want me to do about it? And turned his back around. And then, like, I was like, this is not going well, but I almost can't leave. Like, I need to see what happens. And then, like, 10 minutes later, a guy walks in, holding up the bag. I'm like, oh, the plot thickens. And so this guy goes, like, this isn't mine. And the, and the guy goes, um, he's like, you stole my food? He's like, no, he gave it to me. And then now you got two angry people staring at a teenager whose back is turned with AirPods in a restaurant that only had one other person working. And so clearly he wasn't the man. Anyway, and uh, it, it digressed. And he was like, the guy got so mad. He was like, that's not yours to take. And he's like, I can't pass it out. You gave the wrong food. And so here's like with this, they were like getting so mad. They were like, I ordered this. You gave me, you gave that to the wrong person. Like, I can't go back there and make it. And almost like the teenager almost invited him to. Like it was just bad and really entertaining at the same time. Um, Here's the thing, is that when we talk about the grace of God, when we talk about the meal of God, like, grace is something that can only be given by the person who has it, right? It's his invitation to give out. It's his meal to deliver. It's it's there to pass out. Like, you can't give somebody a gift on somebody else's behalf. It doesn't work like that. If you have kids, maybe you've experienced this. They want to go to a friend's house, and so they come up and be like, hey, uh, so-and-so invited me over. And they're like, did they? No, but I want to go. I was like, no, you can't just invite yourself over but it's at somebody else's house. It's, the, it's their house. It's their invitation to give. Well, when you talk about the grace of God, it's God's gift. 
to give. It, it's God's gift to give whom he wants it to, how he wants to, when he wants to, as much as he wants. That's what it means by unmerited favor. As soon as you think that we earned it in some way, we don't deserve it. And if you, if you follow that up with saying, well, God, God, that's not fair. In reality, if God was being fair, none of us deserve it. The fact that any of us receive grace is a gift. And if you go a step further, grace isn't free. Grace has a cost. And so if you're taking notes, here's our big idea for today. Grace is God's righteousness at Christ's expense. It's God's righteousness, and if that sounds too churchy, think riches, think blessing, think glory, think, like, think fame, think power, whatever you want. God's righteousness at Christ's expense. We're coming up to the holidays, and you might have an office work party where you have a gift exchange, and you have to, uh, you have to exchange gifts or buy a gift for someone else in the office, and there's usually like a spending limit. And there's always two things that I know to be true in an office gift exchange. Number one, there will always be one person that goes well beyond the spending limit. You know what I'm talking about? Like you're like, well, it's $10, and they, they spend way more than that. Or maybe it's a white elephant gift exchange, and someone goes well beyond, and that's the gift everybody wants. Second, I also know to be true that there's always somebody in the office that forgets until the last minute, and it's whatever they can get from Circle K on the way in, right? So somebody's getting like a $200 gift card to this thing, and another person's getting like a slushy. I don't know. But like, like the exchange, like this is not fair. Well, in this case, to receive grace, what happens is that the grace is not free, it says that Christ pays the payment. And so it is the best or the worst gift exchange in the history of the world. Because what we do, what we bring to the table, the only thing we bring to the table is the sin that required God's sacrifice in the first place. And so we exchange our sinfulness, our shortcomings, all our mistakes, and the penalty and the wrath that comes from that for the blessing, the forgiveness, the purpose, and eternal life with God. So Jesus takes on the payment for our sin in exchange for us taking on the blessing of his righteousness and his riches and his forgiveness. And so this exchange is the exchange that defines Christianity. Grace is what separates Christianity from other religions. What we see is when you try to take away from the Bible, you, you lose grace. But when we also, when you try to add to the Bible, this is where we get a number of other religions that come into play. Well, I like the Bible, I like Jesus, but we're gonna add to it another prophet, or we're gonna add to it these other rules or regulations. And what you get as a result is not Christianity. And it's not faith, and it is not grace. But here's one thing I want you to notice and what I like about this definition. It's not original to me, but what I like about this definition is that it actually spells out grace. So God's righteousness at Christ's expense. This is what it means to receive something that we don't deserve. And it's not that it's completely free, it's that it's completely paid for. There's a difference. That Jesus paid for this, that exchange, he came down. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the blessing of the righteousness of God. And so he gives us this grace, and this grace is available 
to everyone. How do we know that? Because Paul's going to share his own story, and he's going to say that if anybody doesn't deserve grace, it would be me. Now, a little background to the book as we jump into this is that this letter was written around 50 AD, so we're only talking 15 to 20 years post-resurrection. So this is the same generation of the people who saw Jesus' ministry, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so the message of Jesus, the message of the way, we're seeing transform lives. And so Paul, his life is transformed. We're going to hear his story in just a minute. And after that transformation, starts planting churches and developing leaders. And so he plants these churches, and he reaches Asia Minor, so modern-day Turkey, and then later, just a couple years later, he writes back, or a couple months later, a couple years later, he writes back to these churches, and he's like, whoa, 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 How, where did you go wrong? Like, weren't you following me? Have you ever carpooled with someone or a group of people to a place, and you got that one friend that's horrible with directions, right? And you're going, they're with me, they're with me. You got eyes in the back, you're like, they're with me, they're with me. And then, and then next thing you look up, and they're just gone. And so I'm like, hey, where are you? You are following me, and somewhere you just turned, and you're not behind me anymore. We need to get back on the same path. And so that's what Paul's doing. He's writing to this church, and it's a church where there are um, social, racial, there is financial, there's religious divisions. And in this case, he's writing to a group of known as Jewish believers and then Gentiles. And so Gentiles is really the broad stroke of basically meaning not Jewish. And so you have Jewish believers, and then you have non-Jewish believers. But Jewish believers who believe in Jesus, but now they have centuries and centuries of old practices and works and laws. They said, hey, if we had to obey these things, you do too. And so they were enforcing extra rules. So there was Jesus plus. So they were saying Jesus plus circumcision. Which, that's an intense requirement if you get saved as an adult, right? Like, that, that, would, be, that would be tougher for evangelism, if that was still a requirement today. They also talked about additional dietary restrictions and other rules that they placed that went beyond the Old Testament and then said, no, you need to follow these rules and these rules. And so it's great that Jesus saved you. It's great that you received grace, but it's also this. And so they're trying to add something to the gospel of grace. And so let's jump into it here and let's walk through this story as we see Paul He's, he's angry, he's angry elf here, he's passionate, and so he starts out the letter, Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle. He's coming right out of the gate, throwing his credibility. He's, he's wearing his military uniform, if you will, religious, and he's saying, look at these badges, like, you will listen to me. Because an apostle actually means to be sent. But what's different about Paul, and what's different about the early disciples is that they weren't sent by men. They were actually sent directly by God. It's different for today. For example, I've, I'm a pastor. I've been ordained. I've been licensed. Now, I was called by God, but then my calling was confirmed by mature believers who are already pastors who then saw me or called me as a pastor. And so my ordination or my license for ministry was based on other people who then affirmed a calling that God placed in my heart. Paul's saying here, now, I, I'm an apostle, but not from men, nor through man. Like, they didn't affirm me. This came directly from Jesus himself. This came directly from the source. He says, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And in case you question 
my authority, I, I'm, I'm coming from Jesus. And in case you're questioning Jesus' authority, he was raised from the dead. Have you been raised from the dead? No? Okay. I'm going to go with that guy. Right? And so he is affirming authority here. And the God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. So he's not alone. He's got other Christians. And so he's writing here with his resume, with his authority, with the power of Jesus. And he says, to the churches of Galatia. Now he pauses and he's a little nice. He goes, grace and peace from God our Father to our Lord Jesus Christ. Like if you're, if you're ever about to discipline a child and then you catch yourself and you start by saying, hey, I want you to know daddy loves you. And then you get back to like, like oh, this is coming down. Like I'm about to rain down some discipline. But hey, I'm doing this in love. Okay. This is going to hurt me more than it hurts you, which is a lie. Okay. No, no, no it does hurt, right? You feel like, oh, I don't want to do it, but I got to do it. Why? Because I love you and discipline requires that. That love requires this discipline. This is what Paul's doing here. He says, I'm an apostle. And what I'm about to say is going to hurt, but hey, grace and peace. It comes from Jesus. And so verse 4, it says, Who gave himself for our sins, this is this gospel right here, to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This message might be coming from me, but it's not about me. It's about Jesus. And it's about your understanding what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. And he says this then in verse 6. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace. There's that word, into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Like, where, where did you go? You were with me a second ago. Right? Verse 7 it says, not that there is another gospel. Again, if you add anything to Jesus or you take anything away, what you get is not Christianity. He says, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And he, and he continues on for time's sake. We're going to skip down to verse 13, but he's writing about this power of the gospel. And we're going to start to see his own example of how the grace of Christ changed him. And so in verse 13, it says, he's writing here and he's saying, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so I extremely, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Not only was I persecuting the Christians and the church, I was good at it. I was getting promoted for it. Like, I wasn't just like, eh, Christianity, whatever, like, I wasn't agnostic. I wasn't like, that sounds kind of cool, but I'm good. Like, I was attacking. Like, I was so far uh, against it and rejecting it that I was converting people to the other side. And if they didn't, I had the power to destroy. Then we get to verse 15. He says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, I love this phrase because it shows value to human life. It shows value to God. And he's even saying, look, this was God's plan all along. I did nothing to earn this. That before the beginning of time, God planned this and, and called me to this. 
He said, and called me. And then how did he call me? Again, by his grace. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. We see this gift. He said, I didn't earn it. If anything, I did everything possible to not earn it. If you love sports and watch games, if you've ever had your team, you're like, we did everything we could to try to lose that game, and somehow we still won. (laughs) Paul did everything possible to lose this game. But because of Jesus, he won. Verse 16, and and God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, this seems interesting to me, and I was curious about it, and I was trying to do some research on it and prayer and devotional thought on this, that after you get saved, why did Paul almost go to obscurity and not immediately to a major platform? Now, he did preach pretty quickly out of it, so it wasn't that he wasn't preaching, but he didn't go to Jerusalem where all the apostles were and the other disciples went. He went to, like, obscurity, to Damascus, to Arabia, and he was there, actually, for about three years. And you want to know why I think this happened? And this is just a little bit of my conjecture in here, but this is, I just give offering my thoughts here. My thinking behind this that I didn't really realize until recently prepping for this series, I think the reason Paul went away is to do two things. One, to affirm it for himself that it's all Jesus. Because if he immediately switched and immediately jumped on board with the disciples, he might or other people might say, oh, he he just wanted to join the winning team. He saw that they were going to do better, and so he just flipped teams and so he did it for political gain. He did it for, for social gain and for power. Or he was tricked into this. You can't say that with him. He wasn't persuaded by the fancy words of this new movement. It was in obscurity. It was on the road to Damascus that he came to Christ. And so not only can you say he wasn't persuaded, that he affirmed it for himself, that when he came out of this three years later... The only explanation for his transformation was Jesus Christ himself. You could not say, yeah, but. If you've ever tried to explain that someone's success was because of something. Well, yeah, of course he's successful. He had this. Well, of course you say that. You, you know that. You were born here. You didn't have what I have. And so... They're taking away these excuses because the only explanation for the change that was seen in Paul's life was Jesus Christ himself. Because what we're going to see is that the disciples were skeptical too. That's why early on, he had to be affirmed by a guy named Barnabas, who vouchers that, no guys, I've, I've seen it. He, this is legit. He's not faking it. So verse 18, he says, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, another name for Peter. So, And then remained with him for 15 days. So he hung out with Peter for two weeks. He says, but I saw that none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. So Peter and James are also two crazy conversion stories. you got a fisherman. you you got the half-brother of Jesus who now are both preaching this gospel. And so we're seeing this craziness here. And he knows there's going to be some skepticism. That's why I love the parentheses in verse 20. Hey, in what I'm writing you before God, I do not lie. Like, I swear to you, like, I'm telling you the truth. 
And then in verse 21 he says, And then I went into the regions of Syria and... And uh, I can't speak words. There you go, another city. And, um, and I was still, I speak for a living. That's cool. Words, great. Anyway, uh, I still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. So I'm still unknown. I still don't have power. I still don't have credibility. I still haven't gotten the celebrity or fame. But it's not about that for me. It's about grace and it's about his message and about Jesus. And then it says this verse 23. It says, they are only hearing what, it said, what is said that he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Ooh, that is a mic drop line right there. The only thing they could say is that this guy who used to persecute the church is now preaching the same message that he once tried to destroy. (laughs) And then the result? They glorify God because of me. How incredible of a testimony is that? And what we get from Paul's story is really three principles that really impacts us and and that we can use when we tell our story. Because every transformation story, every story known as a testimony, has the same three components. And they're listed in your notes below you. First, step one is, is, before Christ, I was blank. What was your life before Christ? I can't fill in that blank because that's your story and your opportunity to share. Now, I came to believe in Jesus at a young age. And I remember I used to feel bad about my story, right? Because you'd go to camps and you'd go to conferences and people were like, I was on the streets. And I met Jesus and now I started this nonprofit that has 10 million people in it. And you're like, wow. But I realized that the power of the story is not me, it's Jesus. And the last time I checked, if you don't have Jesus, you're dead in your sin. And if you're dead and you get brought back to life, that's a miracle, isn't it? Right, you don't have to sit there and say, yeah, I was, I was struggling with drugs, but then I turned five and I turned my life around. Like, <laughs> like for me, I was blessed to, to, to pray to receive Christ there in my home with my parents. But it was really then in my teenage years when I realized, oh, you know what? This thing is true. And that my testimony is not about my life. It's about Jesus' life. And that I'm a sinner. And that I struggle. And that apart from him, I can do nothing as well. And then for me, it, it, that step two is then when I met Christ. I met Christ and, and uh, I followed him. And, and then that third step that you see then is after meeting Christ, I. And if you feel like I don't have a crazy story before Christ, I would hope that you would have an inspirational story after meeting Christ. If your life hasn't changed from before meeting Christ to after, like, are we cutting into the cake here, right? Like, is what you're saying real? Like, do you really believe this? Because if you do, it changes everything. And your life is not defined based on your past mistakes, but it's also not defined by your past successes either. 
That's what I love about Paul. He's saying in here that, look, I used to persecute the church, but when he comes to faith, he doesn't turn around and spout off all how awesome he is. That The only thing he spouts off is the very grace and power of God that transformed his life, and he says, that's available for you too. And so that very simple formula, before Christ, I was searching, I was young, I was naive, I was partying, I was empty. I don't know what that blank is for you. But what I can tell you that if you go to step two, when you meet Jesus, when you receive his grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, that third step, that third action is so life-giving. And it's not that you're perfect, but rather you can walk on the road of grace and it impacts your marriage, your parenting, your relationship, your finances. It changes everything. Because the gospel doesn't just save you, it sustains you. So I want to share one last story with you. It's a guy named John Newton. John was born in the 1700s. His mom died while his dad was away at sea. And so to follow in his dad's footsteps, he, he joins the Navy, but then actually realizes that you can make money. And so he actually joins in what becomes known as the slave trade. And he spends much of his early career sailing up and down the coast of Africa, capturing people, and then turn around and selling them for profit. But on one of these trips, he encounters a storm. The boat almost is destroyed to where he's clinging onto the wheel of the ship for 11 hours, just crying out, Lord, save me. And he comes to the other side of that. And he ends up putting his faith in Jesus. He gets saved. And he realizes that the trading of people is wrong. And he goes from being a slave trader to a abolitionist and a writer. But not just a writer, like someone in ministry. And so he starts writing pamphlets, he starts writing songs, anything to show people that the grace of God changes everything. And his writings would go on to inspire people like William Wilberforce, who was largely responsible for the abolition of slave trade in England and in Europe. And so he's most famously known, John Newton, for in 1772, writing a little song that we know as Amazing Grace. And those words in those verses, in those lyrics, when he talks about the grace that saved a wretch like me, he was a slave trader. <laughs> that I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. That's what's so amazing about grace, is that grace is available to even people like Paul, even people like John Newton, and that if, if God's grace can change them, if God's grace can meet them in a, in a boat, in a storm, on the sea, on the road to Damascus, for people who not only didn't believe in God, were actually hurting people who did. That if God's grace can reach them, I promise you God's grace can reach you, can reach me. That forgiveness is possible. That meaning and purpose and joy is possible. And that when you cut into the cake, when you, when you look at it at its core, it's not Jesus plus something, it's not Jesus minus something, it's simply Jesus and his grace that's available for you.
this is our story. This is our faith. And I challenge you to receive that today. And if you've already received that, I challenge you to share that story today. Will you pray with me? Dear God, just thank you for saving us. God, all of us here, myself included, are sinners that fall short of the mark. But God, we believe in your son Jesus as Lord and as Savior. We add nothing to your word, we take nothing away. That is only through your grace. He paid the penalty for my sins on that cross and then rose again. That gave us the greatest exchange in history, our sin for your righteousness. Not because we earn it, not because we deserve it, but because you give it. And so God, we commit our lives to you. Not in order to be loved, but because we are loved. And so we receive this gift, we receive this grace. That God, if your grace was good enough for Paul, that if your grace was good enough for John Newton, that if your grace was good enough for these people, that it's good enough for us. There's nothing I could do to make you love me more. There's nothing I could do to make you love me less that I simply place these sins, confess these before you, ask for your forgiveness, and may we be changed by your grace today and to share our story, because every story is a grace story. Every story is a story of transformation, and every story is a miracle because it's based on you, Jesus. Help us to tell our stories this week. In your name we pray.